For more media content from Grace Community Church in San Antonio, Texas, go to gccsatx.com. Help your people in all the places where they are. Our brother labors right now up in, in the Yukon in Alaska. Justin, bold, I pray for him, Lord. Uphold him. The Antunes, already asleep. Probably in the wee hours of Monday morning. Lord, be with them. Be an encouragement to them. Guide them through. Lord, it seems that You've put it upon their heart to be here, be in this place. Our sister Donna away. New grandchild. Strengthen our sister. Bergen at home with a sick baby. The new, new pressures of that on her life. Give her the grace to be a mother. Lord, I, there's probably others out as well. Lord, we need, I, I, I pray. Pray for my brothers and sisters in this place. Lord, the one thing I ask right now is just that we might go away with the realization that we really heard from God. This wasn't Brother Tim's words. Oh, we heard his voice. But we really believe that what we heard today is a message from God. Lord, may people be convinced of that. May I be convinced that what I say is truly what you would have to impact my life. Come now, Lord, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Romans 12. We move on today to verse 13 after spending a number of weeks on verse 12. Verse 13 also holds some riches. You know, doesn't it make you wonder sometimes? You go, you go through Romans chapter 12 and it's like you've got one thing being thrown at you at another. It's almost like, Paul, do you really think that in just a typical reading of this, I mean, how, how, do you, how in the world do you do devotional reading? You know, if you're like me, I, you read a chapter or four chapters, or I don't know how you do it, but how in the world, like, like just, let's suppose your Bible reading schedule is to read a chapter a day. Can you imagine when you get to Romans 12? I mean, it's like in a couple weeks, where are we? We're in Romans 8 today, just in a church reading. In a month, we're going to do Romans 12. Now think about it. We're going to shoot down through all those things. Bang, 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 bang. It's like you can really walk away and say, wow, I was impacted by all those points. It's almost like, you know, we have to ask ourselves, just by the help of the Spirit of God, we can't get it all. We can't get it all at once. That's why this is a lifetime thing. We keep having to coming back again and again and again. And you have like David was saying to us last week, I'm going to do what Peter did. And that's what I'm doing. It's so often it's not the new thing. It's we already know these things. We just have to be reminded. We've read them before. We know they're in God's Word. And what happens in the, the beauty about preaching is we, we, be, we get the opportunity to focus right in on certain aspects. We can do in the preaching what we can't do just in the devotional reading. And that's, that's one of the glories of this. We're going to just pounce on verse 13 today. I've given my sermon this name. The saint, the stranger, and our stuff. Let's read the verse. 
Romans 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So I call it saint, stranger, and our stuff. Well, by stuff, I mean this. If you're going to contribute to people's needs, you're going to give out of your stuff, right? You're going to give from your money out of your bank account or you're going to go to your pantry at home and you're going to pull some food out for... Heather or for whatever sister's in need and they just had a child or somebody's stricken with poverty somehow. Or if we're going to show hospitality, right? You show hospitality with your stuff. You put your home at the disposal of somebody or your beds or your hot cup of coffee or whatever it is. That's what I mean by our stuff. The saint, the stranger, and our stuff. And I think you can all see the saint in that verse, right? Contribute to the needs of the saints. That one's not hard to find. So there you got it. The saint and the stuff. But where in the world do I get stranger from? Where is stranger in this verse? Well, he's hiding. He's there, but he's hiding in the word hospitality. Now let me just tell you something about that word. Typically, we as Americans, when we think hospitality, what do we think about? Well, you know, as I was preparing the message, because it was so recent and everything, what came to my mind is Jamie Haney. You want to walk over and put the ice in the ice thing at her house on her table so that we can all have cold drinks. And she got her smile on her face, and she comes in, and she puts down the cake, and that's hospitality, right? And it is. It is. I mean, that's right. That, and that's what we attribute to the English word hospitality. But let me tell you something. The Greek word here actually has a depth of meaning that goes much deeper than our English meaning does. Let me tell you. The Greek word carries the meaning or the idea of showing hospitality to strangers. Let me show you what I mean. Listen, don't turn there, but just listen to how this word is translated in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Well, hospitality to strangers in the Greek is not three words. It's one. It's this word we have right here in Romans 12, 13. It's a word that specifically means love and kindness for strangers. That's, that's the idea. Or love and kindness for foreigners. We can literally say it means stranger loving. That's the idea. It's the idea of receiving a stranger into your house or as a guest somewhere and pouring out love on them. That's the idea. Using our stuff for their sake. So, now here, here's what I want to do today. I'm going to spend the bulk of the time dealing with the saint in our stuff. But almost everything that I'm going to say applies to the stranger in our stuff as well. And I'll just say before I move on, when we think about the stranger in our stuff, stranger has the idea of somebody who is not a friend. They're not a family member. Why? Because they're a stranger. That's what strangers are. They're not families. They're not friends. Now, if you bring a stranger into your house by the end of their stay, they may be a friend. But it's the idea of... And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a Christian or not a Christian. And beloved, let me just throw this out. Why don't we have 
more hospitality towards strangers. I tell you one of the main reasons, fear. Right? Well, there's various kinds of fear. It might be, I don't do well around strangers. I might have them over to my house, and you know how you sit there with that awkward silence? Oh, man, I just don't know what to say. <laughs> These people are strange. Yeah, because they're strangers. That's, that's what happens. You get strange people in your house. And, but Christ would have us press on through that awkwardness. Why are some of the other reasons? Fear. Well, they might mess my stuff up. Or they might just do things that aren't nice. Like I remember one time at Community Baptist Church, these strangers came from Waterwood. We didn't know them. Ruby and I said, hey, you want to have lunch with us? And they came over. And I remember after we were done eating, the little kid had these diapers on. And I mean, they were literally exploding with stuff that I can't describe. It was... And the mother was just like oblivious. And the child just running all over the house. And I mean, hey, my wife showed extreme hospitality, I thought. She changed that baby and it was just disgusting. You get strangers in. You don't... I remember one time, Brother Rick was here last week. My brother-in-law, he used to live right over here south of town on Avant. He brought a woman and her children into the home. He was, being hospita- he was showing hospitality. I remember coming there one time, and I got to understand, Rick lived in this house, they didn't have central air, they had wall units. I remember driving in one day, and I'm looking at Rick's wall unit, and you know how it's got all the fins that all the air is supposed to pass through so you get the good heat transfer there? They were all like folded back, and the whole thing was really shiny because you didn't see the edge anymore, you saw all the sides of the fins because they were pressed up. That Rick, what happened to your air conditioner? Well, in all of his hospitality, this lady had these kids and they were beating on it with sticks and just crushing all the fins. Now look, when you bring the stranger in, those are the kind of things that happen. We don't, we don't, we resist hospitality to the strangers because it might get a spot on our rug. It might do things on our bed we don't, and it might not be nice. But listen, let me just move you forward to that day when Christ returns. Guess what's going to happen? What, is about, what does 2 Peter say? About chapter 2. It says that there's going to fire come and burn it all up. Now let me ask you something. When you keep the stranger out and you keep the spot off your carpet versus when you get the spot on your carpet and the fire comes down from heaven, you know what? The unspotted carpet and the spotted carpet are in the same ash heap. And bottom line is, what, what we find in the Scriptures is we're stewards. And the stuff that has been given to us is given to us to do His bidding, to show love to the stranger. And so, you know what? Christ will more than compensate you if you lose your carpet or if you lose your air conditioning unit. That's hard for us. That's hard for us, brethren, because we live in a day and an age when, oh yeah, we can come to fatties and kind of rub shoulders with some strange people. But God forbid we let them in our house. That's just coming too close to home. But I tell you, that's, that's, you hit the heart of hospitality right there. Well, let's, let's move on from there. I want to deal with and focus our, the rest of our attention today on our stuff when it comes to our relationship with the saints. This is so practical. Why is it practical? Well, it's practical because it deals with real life. Why? Because we all have stuff. And because we live in a world with a lot of needy Christians. So, 
It's very practical. Well, Paul says contribute to the needs of the saints. I like how old Tyndale in his ancient translation puts it. Distribute unto the necessity of the sancties. <laughs> he spells it S-A-Y-N-C-T-S. So if he were here today, he would say, I'm in the midst of the sancties. You see how the evolution of words kind of came from that? Saints and the word sanctification come from the same word group. Basically, saint, sanctification, it's the idea of holiness, separate. And that's the idea. We are the sanctified ones. But, but the reason I even hit on that, just like with the old KJV or whatever, you, you've got, and, and there are translations that use the word distribute or contribute. And I started thinking, again, I think we need to kind of delve into that word a little bit because what do you think about when you think about contribute? I mean, what comes to my mind is the boss comes and says something like, uh, United Way's coming and they're looking for contributions and they're going to want to talk to everybody. Contribute or distribute. I just got an email from Nunu. And he said that they went into the area near the epicenter of the earthquake that took place over there. And they took blankets and they took different things. And he said, it seems like the government has come there. And ten days after the earthquake, all these families that have basically been put out of their homes are in crisis situation. He said all that has been distributed to the families is one cup of rice and three noodles. Whatever that means. <clears throat> But when we think about this distribution, we think about something that everybody gets. And I th I, there's really a meaning here in this word that we want to dive into and pull out because I think it's going to help us. Now here's what I want to do. Imagine this wall is a prison wall. I want to, I want to take you folks somewhere. Imagine there's a, a window up there with bars in it. And you come over and I give you a leg up here and I'm holding you and you're looking, you're looking through that barred window. Here's what I want you to imagine seeing on the other side of those bars. You got an old man, a Jewish looking fellow with a long gray patriarchal looking beard. He's old, but even though the outer man is kind of fading away, he's still, that inner man's renewed. He's still got a twinkle in his eye. This guy's got some passion. He's in prison. He's a prisoner for Christ. They told him to shut his mouth, stop preaching the gospel. But Paul, you can't keep that guy quiet. Men and women are perishing. He has the great remedy, Christ crucified. How in the world can he hold his tongue? He can't. Now he sits in prison. His crime, he's ex simply explained to men and women how they might be saved from their sins through the sufferings of Christ. But now, his freedom is gone. He sits there in the prison, the monotony of it. And the one thought that keeps going through his mind is, it would be far better to be out of here and to be at home with the Lord. Now look, I don't know whether it was a dungeon. I don't know whether it was a cell of some sort. I don't know whether he was thrown in a pit. Or if it was better accommodations than that. I know 
not. But I can tell you this. When Paul describes these experiences, he talks about bonds. He talks about chains. In one place, he calls himself an ambassador in chains. But I want you to think about, if you were looking through that window and you were looking in there on Paul in prison, something is suddenly changing. All of a sudden, Paul's got a visitor. And where did this guy come from? I don't know whether Paul could have heard prison doors opening and closing somewhere out there in the prison and somebody approaching, footsteps, <coughs> excuse me, possibly coming down the corridor, what it would have been. But Paul, you can imagine, his heart jumped. Who's this guy? I don't know if he'd ever met him face to face before. Suddenly, he sees Epaphroditus. Who's Epaphroditus? He's a godsend. He's come from the church at Philippi. Those unbelievably generous Macedonians. They've done it again. Epaphroditus wasn't coming empty-handed. You know what he had? He had gifts for Paul. Now, I don't know what those gifts looked like. I don't know if they were clothes, if they were food, if they were somehow, you know, sometimes even in our jail systems today, if you can give the prisoners money, they're able to buy things, they're able to get things that they need. I don't know if it was like that then, but here he comes. Gifts from the Philippians! And in Philippians 4.18, Paul calls those gifts a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But brethren, this isn't even the first time. This isn't the first time the Philippians ever gave to Paul. When Paul <clears throat> writes to the Philippians to thank them for that gift that he just got from Epaphroditus, you know what Paul does? Thank you, sir. He reflects back. You know what he says? I am really thankful for this gift you sent me. But you know, as I'm thinking about this gift, I'm reminded that when I first came into Macedonia, you guys remember the whole Macedonian call thing? He was over there in Asia. He goes over to Macedonia into the area of Philippi. And you know what happened? The jailer was saved. Philippian jailer from Acts 16. We know about that. Lydia was saved. We know about those stories. You know what he says? When, when I first brought the Gospel in there to you guys, you met my needs once and again. Not just once. And he said, after I left Philippi, he went to Thessalonica. There he is at Thessalonica. And once and again, they sent to his need. You know what that meant? That meant something like the jailer or his wife, or one of his sons, or Lydia, or whatever it was, one of the household there, somebody that was saved in that first wave of gospel preaching went down that road to Thessalonica, not just once, they did it once and again, and they took and they met Paul's financial needs. Brethren, here's what he says. You Philippians, this is in Philippians 4.15, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, now listen, no entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now brethren, the whole reason I took you here, the whole reason I'm having you imagining looking through this, seeing Epaphroditus in there, coming to him, 
Paul, writing back to the Philippians, he sends after some time Epaphroditus was there to serve him. Here's the thing. That church at Macedonia, those Philippians, they didn't only send a gift with Epaphroditus, they sent Epaphroditus. What does that mean? They, they said, Epaphroditus, go there and serve Paul and cater to his needs indefinitely. Now, Paul sent him back because he, got, he almost died. And he sent him back. And when he sent him back, he sent this Philippian letter with him. And he says to that church, you entered into partnership with me. I brought you there to see that. Why? Entered into partnership with me that's our same word, distribute or contribute, that's found over in Romans 12.13. You see, Paul doesn't simply mean when he talks about contribution and distribution, he doesn't just mean that out of a sense of duty, you come and write a check and put it in that box. It's not what he's saying. He's going deeper. He's going further. That church entered into partnership. It literally means to share in the distress. To be in fellowship with the necessities of another. When Paul says contribute to the needs of the saints, he's saying we're not merely to distribute to the necessities of the saint, but that you enter into fellowship with those necessities. You become partners with them. You share their necessities. Listen. In other words, you must feel the burden that they have. You must feel that their burden, those saints who are in financial crisis, Paul is calling us to let their burden weigh on you as though their burden is your burden. You're in hardship with them. You get into their shoes. This is far more than contributing because it's duty. Because someone's twisted your arm. Paul wants you really feeling what that brother or sister in need is feeling. Now brethren, here's the thing. This is no mystery to us. It's not a mystery at all. We know what it is to feel someone else's need as though it's our own. And I'm not saying that because you necessarily have done it. I'm saying it because we know what it is to feel our need when the need is our own. And when you actually allow yourself to get into somebody else's shoes so that their need becomes yours, you feel the same way. So it's not foreign to us how that ought to make us feel. Because you and I have had needs enough of our own and we know what it is to feel that need when it is our own. You see where I'm coming from? We know what that feels like. The sudden medical emergency comes. Oh no, I've been living on the edge here. I've been living paycheck to paycheck. All of a sudden my child's sick. My knee's blown out. What am I going to do? I don't have insurance. You know what that feels like. You know what it's like when the boss says, Going to have to cut your pay. Or, we don't need you here anymore. You know what it's like when all of a sudden the water heater stops heating, the roof starts leaking, the transmission stops shifting, the pipes stop 
flowing. The car stops running. The body doesn't work just right anymore. We know what that feels like. And you know the pressure of it. Oh no, how can I pay for that? And now, now all of a sudden I'm not certain how these bills are going to be met. Brethren, we can thank God that we're not in situations like in some countries where you have to put your children to bed hungry and crying. And that's a reality. We can thank God for that. But every one of us knows what it is to be under financial pressure. Brethren, we know that. We know the stress. Have you been there? Your, your, your mind is constantly working and it is a pressure because almost everything we do in this life has something to do with money. You think about all the things we do with the money. We pay our taxes with the money. We put gas in our car with the money. We buy our food with our money. We buy clothes with the money. We pay the mortgage with our money. We pay the rent with the money. We pay the heat bill with the money. We pay the water bill with the money. We buy a myriad of things. We make our cars go. When they, they got to be fixed, when they need tires, we, money comes into all these different things. And when suddenly it's not there and we run out, suddenly something came into our life. Suddenly poverty has come upon us in a way that was not anticipated. And there's pressure. Brethren, there's a frantic feeling. There can be a helpless sense that grifts us. And Paul is driving that when he says this, contribute to the needs of the saints, is that the needs of others need to become something that we fellowship with. You know what's very interesting about this word contribute or distribute? It comes from the same word group from which we get fellowship. The koinonia fellowship, comfort. You know, Brethren, let, let, let's just jump back to Paul. I want you to think about this. Let's jump back to Paul for a second. I want you to think. You know, don't think Paul, don't think of Paul like sitting in the Bear County Jail. Stephen can tell us what they eat there. I tell you what, it's probably better than I ate in college. I'd imagine that for certain. You know, I read, a, I read the biography of Adoniram Judson. He preached the gospel over in Burma. Early 1800s. He got thrown in prison there. You know what? If his wife wouldn't have come every day and given him food, he wouldn't have eaten. I mean, that's not only in the prisons. That's in the hospitals. I remember John, John and I, we visited hospital over in Imphal City, close by the Burmese border where James Dolly is. And folks, even in the hospital, if your family and friends don't come for you and cook your food for you, guess what? You don't eat. And I've read enough occasions of people getting thrown in prisons, not in, in the United States, in other places, in other times, in the maggots and the mold, and when there isn't family and friends. I'm telling you, you, you guys ever watch the thing on Corey Ten Boom? There's, there, they didn't have enough clothes. They were sticking newspapers inside their clothes to try to stay warm. I'm telling you, when you get in prison in these places, oftentimes the, the, the situation isn't just whether you can meet the bills at the end of the month. The situation is the very necessities of life are not there. And here comes the Philippians to the rescue. Now you just think about the logistics of that. 
Listen, sometimes things are far away and biblical and they seem surreal to us. But these are real people. You know how it works, right? Paul's over there in his extremities, in his necessities, in that prison. And what was going on back at Philippi? You had some people. They were getting together, right? They were probably sitting in somebody's home. They were sitting in somebody's somebody's. Uh, marketplace. They were sitting somewhere in somebody's barn. They were gathered together and somebody somewhere was feeling the weight of what Paul was going through. And you know there was a first guy that said somebody or some bodies who really lived said and was the first to say you know what? We need to help Paul. I mean right? That's how things work. Is it not? Somebody had to be the one to initiate Say, you know, I just feel for Paul. We need to help Paul. And somebody else, maybe it was Epaphroditus himself, would have said, hey, why don't we send Epaphroditus? Or hey, why don't we send me? And somebody else would have, would have said, yeah, and let's leave him there as long as Paul needs him. I mean, in one place in Philippians, he's called an apostle. Well, he was a messenger. He was a sent one. I mean, I doubt that this guy was just some, you know, Johnny-come-lately-sit-in-the-back-row-rarely-attend guy. This was one of their men that they valued in the church. They're willing to give him up. We will give Epaphroditus indefinitely to Paul. And let's heap lots of gifts on him. Let's, let's make sure Paul is supplied for when he goes. Brethren, they weren't a rich church. The Philippian church was one of the Macedonian churches. The Macedonian churches are described in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They were poor. They had their own afflictions to deal with. Epaphroditus would have been very sacrificial to give him up. And, and you know, the gift was so big that Paul actually says there at the end of Philippians, I am well supplied. Whatever the gift was, it was rich. It was, it was sacrificial. They were poor. And what I'm telling you is, somebody, somewhere, was actually feeling a burden and putting themselves in Paul's shoes. Folks, they were remembering Paul. They were thinking about Paul. And they were doing it as though they were in prison with him themselves. That's what the idea of fellowshipping with. As though they were with him in prison. Now does that, hmm, does that ring a bell? Does that sound like any other scripture you might find in the Word of God? How about Hebrews 13.3? Remember those who are in prison. How should we remember them? As though in prison with them. In other words, put yourself in their place and those who are mistreated since you're also, you are also in the body. Now brethren, some in the body, according to 1 Thessalonians, are unruly. Some are weak. Some are feeble. But you know what's being said? If they're in the body, and you're in the body, guess what? We weep with those who weep. We sorrow with those who sorrow. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We deal with one of our own when they get in prison as though we are there ourselves. Brethren, do you see what's happening? If we have 14 people or whatever it is join the church, as soon as they come in, what happens? Their sorrows, their burdens, their necessities become ours. Their tears become ours. We suddenly have that much more to invest ourselves in. 
There's that much more we need to sink ourselves into. Brethren, this is exactly what you see happening in the early church. Exactly. Is it not? I mean, in, in Acts chapter 4, what happens? Wow! Spirit of God sweeps through, 5,000 people converted. But when the Spirit of God sweeps through, He doesn't leave the hearts left hard and inconsiderate and stingy. Because what happens? By the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 4, what do you have? People are coming and they're selling homes. They're selling lands. Brethren, they're selling homes and lands. Why? Because their hearts were pressed upon. They felt, they felt as though they were actually in the place of others. Brethren, the Scripture says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ. How do you bear another's burdens? Folks, if somebody came into this room with a great big hundred pound bag on their back, how do you help them bear the burden? You come over, you get your shoulder underneath it, you get your arms around it, and you help carry part of the weight. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ. You see, this is no small thing. There's no small thing whatsoever. What is more than that? What achievement is higher? Now, I would just, right here at the end, I want to give you five reasons that we don't give more like this. Five reasons why we don't really live up to this as we ought to. Oh, brethren, let those Macedonians be an example to us. Not only did they give to Paul, not only did they send Epaphroditus, not only did they give once and again to him when he was in Thessalonica, there, there, some of these Macedonians that are talked about in 2 Corinthians, you know what they were doing in their own affliction? They felt they're in the body. Who else is in the body? Those poor saints up there at Jerusalem or over there at Jerusalem, they're in the body too. They felt for them. Those folks had hearts the size of Texas. They just, I mean, they're all out of money. They're in poverty. They don't have any more. And they're begging Paul, please let us give. And how do you, I mean, when in the world do you have to beg to give? Typically, when somebody doesn't want you to give. You typically beg for something when something's difficult to obtain. It was likely Paul looked at them and said, you guys, you guys just have to stop. I mean, you're giving yourself, you've given beyond what already what you can give. And they're saying, please, Paul, we want to give to those Jewish Christians. We so feel for them. Their hearts were moved. Well, here, let's launch in. Why don't we give more like this? And the first one is, we don't feel for others. I mean, when others are under the pressure of a trial, we tend to look the other way. Now, brethren, think with me. When you are in a trial, when you're there, what are you looking for? Are you looking the other way? No, you're looking for a way out. That's what trial... Suffering is called suffering because when we have it, we suffer. And we don't like suffering. And so we're looking for a way out. We don't prefer suffering. We try to run away from it. 
Brethren, we know what it is. We felt it. Needs press in upon us. We have no answer financially how we're going to meet the ends. Our minds are constantly going. When there's financial crisis, your mind is just constantly going. How am I going to do that? How am I going to work that out? There's concerns. can consume our thinking sometimes. We use money for all these things. Gas and food and clothing and house and rent and all that. Money runs out. We're literally reminded at every turn. Often once things go bad, it just quickly seems like the next thing goes bad. And the next thing. And the next thing. That thing breaks. I don't know how I'm going to fix it. It's almost like Job sometimes, you know? You're just, you're just staggering over the first one and bang, the next one comes. And then the third thing. And you're, at that point, you're just you're down in the dust and ashes. You don't know how to get up. But when we're in that, it's a burden. And it's a burden that we can't shake until it's gone. We're unsettled. There's uncertainties. Well, brethren, some of us don't give more because we don't feel more. We don't want, you know what we never want to have happen here? We don't want this church to be duty-driven. Duty-given. You know what Paul's calling for? Fellowship-giving. You can walk past the suffering child of God and say, go in peace, be warm, be filled, harden yourself against their needs because you already did your duty. Look, if, if you can see other Christians suffering financially and say, oh man, Glad I'm not in your place. Brethren, do you see what you've done? When you bear another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. What the law of Christ constrains us to do, it's a law of love. It's the law of fellowship. It's the law of burden bearing. That's not it. What, what, we, if the Spirit of God is truly at work in our lives, it's not the kind of thing where we say, man, but I'm not where they're at. It says, oh man, I need to bear that burden with them. I need to climb in there. I need to find out about where they're at. Because you know what? You'll never feel for other people if you don't know. If you're not informed, you won't have a burden. You've got to get in there. Some, some don't like to be informed because they know with information comes responsibility. And the, least, the, the less they know, the, the least it's going to impact their financial situation. Brethren, we don't want to be like that. Miss the heart of Christianity altogether. Fulfilling the law of Christ is to say, not, oh man, I'm glad I'm not in your place. But brother, sister, I'm going to strive to be in your place. Even though your trial didn't initially fall on me, your trial is going to become my trial because I'm going to bear this burden with you. That's what it means to contribute to the saints. Brethren, this is no light matter. James says in James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. You see, the words are right. Boy, they sound nice, don't they? Oh, just, you know. God bless you, brother. The words are good. The words are tender. 
But without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And you remember that's the portion where he is talking about dead faith. What good is that? He's saying, what good is the faith you have if that's what you're able to do? Now, the second reason that we don't maybe more freely and liberally give in this area is that we lack love for one another. Now, I know it's very close to we don't feel for the others, and it is, it's closely associated. We read in the Scriptures about the love of many growing cold. Brethren, we live in a day when people don't want to give. They largely want to get. We get people like this. They come in the church, they want to get. As long as you're kind of showing me the right thing, I'll stay here. As long as I'm getting what I think I ought to get. But when I stop getting it, brethren, you know what I found? I have found in my 20 years of Christian life that those men and those women who can sell a home or land because they can feel for others. They don't lightly wake up one morning and just say, ha, you know what? I think I'm going to go to another church. Look, there can be right reasons to leave a church. I'm not saying that. But so much of the church hopping today and people just kind of going where the going to get, going to get. People don't lightly do that when they've been able to weep with others in their burdens and sorrow with others in their burdens and give sacrificially to others in their burdens. Brethren, we Americans tend to be shallow. What we find is when God gets a hold of a person, we love a group of people enough to really get deep into their lives to where they suffer and where we suffer with them. They weep, we weep with them. We share in their financial needs with them. We come out of their trial feeling like it was our trial as well. It's hard to just say, I'm out of here. I'm going to go make a new set of friends somewhere else. It's hard. It's hard. And in fact, when situations like that do arise, where something necessitates you to leave that group of people, you leave part of yourself behind. It tears a chunk of you out. Brethren, I'm not talking communism here. You understand that communism is basically where you live in a system where law says you have to even everything out. If you've got much... You know, what did the, the communists came into different parts of Eastern Europe and what did they do immediately? They took everything away from the rich and they basically distributed everything so that basically everybody gets hardly anything but they all get the same hardly anything. Basically, the state becomes the wealthy one. All the normal people, they all are even. They're all in the same... That's not what God's saying. God's not saying every penny you get, put in that box, and then we'll have some you know, authorities come along and we'll distribute it. You know what the interesting thing is? You know what? If that were the case, all your problems go away, right? Because it's, it's just legal. You just do what the law says. Give it in there, and you have no problems then, right? You just hold, hold to the line of the law. 
But you see, the way it really is, is not that easy. Because what's God done? He's made us stewards. And He's given you possessions. And in your possessions as a steward, now He says, you decide who and when to give to. You examine the circumstances and be motivated by love, not by law. And as soon as that's the case, guess what? It becomes very difficult for us, right? Because now we have to become discerning. We have to become feeling. We have to become loving. No problems with communism. We can just be all mechanical about that. But God hasn't made us that way. And the way He has made us, guess what? Our love gets tested all the time. <laughs> Brethren, Martin Lloyd-Jones says something that caught my attention concerning the subject of love that I thought was worth repeating here. He says, people sometimes think that John was the loving apostle and much more tender than the apostle Paul. He says, I always find them the other way around. Listen to what he says here. I thought this was funny. John with his bluntness frightens me much more than Paul does. And he says, listen to this. 1 John 3.17 If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Paul never said anything as severe as that. He's much the gentler of the two. My friend, let me ask you this. If you become aware, and I'm not talking just about the saints' needs here. There are saints in Guinea, Africa. There are saints in Indonesia and China that may be much more needy than we are. John says, if you're able to see those needs and harden your heart, how does the love of God abide in you? John says that. James says, you got dead faith. Brethren, even if you're poor, you don't have much, consider the Macedonians in their great affliction. Look, if, if all of a sudden a brother or sister is in need, and you look at it and you say, well, I mean, come on. I don't even have a house. They have a house. Yeah, but still, they may, even though they have a house, their need at that, at that critical time may be more than yours. There may be some distress there. They may have a sick child. There may be other circumstances. They may be ready to get foreclosed on if they can't meet this thing. Your five or ten dollars is an expression of love. You just don't even know what that can do in the spiritual realm. You don't know what that can do for a sense of unity in the church. You don't know what that can do for an inner, inner sense of fellowship among one another. What's another reason? Brother, another reason we don't give more, a third reason, is that we're greedy. Brethren, I'll tell you this. If all of a sudden you see a brother or sister in need and your first thoughts are not, oh man, how can I get in their shoes and help bear that burden? But rather, your first thoughts are, oh man, if I to help them, then I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do that. God forbid, brethren, those early Christians they sold their homes to help needy Christians. 
So what if you have to wear old clothes or get the cable TV turned off? Brethren, listen to me. Are you ready to stand before the Lord on judgment and say on judgment day and say No Lord I I did not help my brother when I saw him in need But Lord I had the Discovery Channel Lord I had this great big 90 inch plasma HD I had that I didn't help that sister. But Lord, look at my iPhone. I, I had one of those. Isn't, isn't this impressive? Brethren, that's not impressive. What's impressive is the Macedonians. That is impressive. What's another reason? Another reason, folks, that we don't give more like this is we lack faith. We're afraid. We don't trust the Lord. You know one of the things that Paul said to the Philippians? He said, My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He said that right as he was closing that letter out and they had so sacrificially given to him. And he said, Look, God is going to provide for your needs. There's a faith issue here. When a brother or sister has a need and we withhold simply because we're concerned... See, you know what happens? Well, yeah, I got this retirement... I, I got I got the secure I got the emergency fund. You know, Dave told me about that on the radio. Gotta have that. And you see, I see a present need in my brother. But I'm concerned about not any crisis that I have currently, but possible future ones. Just don't want to go there. My my security blanket. Again, brethren. I just bring us back to Judgment Day. What, what, what would it be like to be able to say to the Lord, if a brother had need, the Lord would ask you, did you meet that need? You were to say to the Lord, Well, Lord, see, it was this way. The only money I had was my retirement fund. The only money I had um, was my emergency fund. I didn't have enough faith to trust You. Lord, what are you saying? Are you you thinking that I actually should have liquidated my security? Really? For the needs of one of your little ones who you shed your blood for? Do you really think I should have done that? Brethren, I'll give you a fifth reason we, we don't give more like this. And I finish with this. We don't keep our eyes sufficiently fixed upon what the Lord has done for us. Don't you remember how Paul starts the very chapter of Romans 12? He says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. I'll tell you this, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9, there's a mercy of God for you to consider. You know what it says? Christ was rich. Yet for your sake He became poor. Brethren, that's a thought to take home with you today. 
here I am. 25 years of my life. Can I tell you something? I cursed and profaned the name of Jesus Christ so abominably when I was lost. When I was first saved, I couldn't say Jesus Christ because it was a profanity to me. I had to say Christ Jesus. I had to switch it around. I cursed. I blasphemed His name. My mouth was wicked. It was vile. And you know what I'm confronted with in Scripture? Here I am, the blasphemer, the profaner. He comes and He says, I became poor for you that you might be rich. For my sake, He became poor. I fought Him. I have an image in my mind one day. I can remember I was driving to South Haven to the beach. I was ready to party and live it up. And we were going by a church. And I remember seeing all those people in the parking lot. I don't know if they were going in or if they were coming out. I was greedy for my sin. The thought of worshiping Christ on a Sunday, I disdained it with disgust. I wanted the beach. I wanted the golf course. I wanted the backyard keg party. That's where I was headed. And, and can Christ come along to me and say, yes, I know. But I became poor for your sake. But Lord, don't you remember the time that I laughed at eternal things? I scoffed at those who went to church. I hated those things. Can it be that for my sake you became poor? And Lord, you became that poor for one so worthless as me? You know what the Lord says? Yes, yes. For you. I shed that blood for you. I gave all I could to make you rich. And I didn't despise the shame of the cross. No. Not even my own life would I withhold. I drank the bitterest cup of shame and I did it for you. And I did it for you. It was a poverty that I can never explain to anybody else. It's a poverty that not even the damned in hell can tell. Yeah, I know poverty. I know poverty in the way nobody else ever can. And I did that for you. I never knew such agony. I did it for you. And can you hear His gracious voice? Now, I send you to one of my little ones. One of the saints. He has a need. Will you now treat Him in a way I never treated you? I send a stranger to you. When you were a stranger, I became poor to make you one of the household of God. Are you going to leave Him outside? Are you going to do something I never did to you? Brethren, Paul appeals to the mercies of God. And I appeal to them as well. 
Brethren, let the mercies of God constrain you. God help us. Amen.